0: Today is the greatest Sunday of the year. Indeed, the greatest day. It's my most favorite holiday. I mean, Christmas is great with the presents and and the gifts and the trees and the food, but Easter, Resurrection Sunday. I think we underestimate what this Sunday means. I mean, we treasure Christmas, and probably because it's about the little baby. We can all relate to babies, can we not? It's a lot easier to relate to babies than it is to crucified carpenters. We have a hard time with that. It's capital punishment. It's not something you like to celebrate. But I think we really, as Christians, truly misunderstand the resurrection. I don't know if you've been like me. You keep up with what's going on in the news and in television. And in recent weeks, there's been just this flurry of TV specials. About Christ. There always is every year. Every year at Christmas and every year at Easter, there's something going on. There are so many different documentaries, whether it's the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or something by PBS or what have you. It could be any of those things. They have all of these specials about Jesus and they bring these so called experts, guys with initials behind their name but have no faith. Who have never ever even believed it all whatsoever and approach the Bible complete as a literary book. Something historical and not even that to them. So they give all of these different theories that they have on why Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Or they take some minuscule evidence that they found someplace that never has ever been regarded and they build an entire theory upon that. Most recently, I think we can see that within the special, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, that has been aired by the Discovery Channel, great theory, unfortunately terribly, terribly wrong. Even the Discovery Channel has pulled it, not continued to run the special, because they realized so many experts came out that are not believers, and they said, you guys are way off, totally discredited. But so many people started to speak when that information came out. And one, I remember hearing a radio talk show of a a clergyman, a pastor, and I'm still in disbelief, but the pastor called in and he was talking and he said, you know, even if they did find Jesus' body, that wouldn't change my faith one bit. One bit. And I have to vehemently, so strongly disagree with them. Because if they found Jesus' body, I, my faith, would change, how I live my life would change, how I treat my wife would change, how I spend my money would change, how I got education would change, how I raise my children would change, how I work, how I play, how I do life would change tremendously. But I believe today that we have put the resurrection into the corner. We've swept it away, we've surrounded ourselves with so many sounds so many noises but God's voice still speaks and it always penetrates I mean Satan is a real individual a spirit being that is at war with God and desires to blind people for those of you who have seen the matrix, you get the concept there's this whole imaginary world and they want to keep you down so you don't see the reality of your situation see that's what Satan wants to do, doesn't want us to see the reality of our situation and we have all these theories and all these opinions and what are we to do? What do we do in the midst of this? And, And yet the resurrection calls to us. Easter Sunday morning is coming. What does it mean for each one of us? What does it really mean? What does the resurrection mean? Does it mean everything or does it mean anything? What's the point? Does it affect your faith? What does the resurrection mean to you? What does it mean to me? The Apostle Paul actually talked about this. He actually said within 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pity. Have you ever had pity for someone? Someone that was slow, maybe when you were on the playground, and that kid that got beat up and you felt sorry for him. You ever felt sorry for someone? Sometimes I see the commercials or those America's Funniest Home Videos and you have a three-legged dog running around. You feel sorry for the dog, right? It's okay to laugh, right? But it's true. What do you feel sorry for? And I think about this and I'm like, you know, without the resurrection, I'm to be pitied. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Christ, what are we doing here? What's the point? Why are we sitting in here? Why are we singing these songs? Why would we put on our Sunday best? Why would we do all this stuff? Pity. Feel sorry for us, And I would. I would feel sorry. I feel sorry for those individuals that have placed their faith in something that's completely ridiculous. Some years ago, there was a church on the internet. You know what it was called? Church of the Sacred Mushroom. True story. They believe that Jesus came in the form of a mushroom. Can you believe that? Some people do. I mean, we can think about some of the greatest tragedies. Remember the Jim Jones debacle? Or the Heaven's Gate cult in the late 90s? Believed that the mothership was going to arrive. People put their faith in this. And I pity them. Because it's based on some whacked out weirdo's teaching. Not based on any objective truth. But are we to be pitied? If the resurrection is not true and they found Christ's body, you better believe we should be dead. But the fact is, the body was never found. Matter of fact, the body was walking around. The body appeared to over 500 witnesses. He ate with people, he talked with them. They were freaked out. I mean, I would be freaked out. I've been to the funeral home and stood over caskets. I've seen lifeless bodies. And I mean, Jesus was beaten, I mean, horribly beaten. Blood flying everywhere, swollen, flesh torn from his back. Nails in his wrists and his feet, a crown of thorns. I mean, almost beyond recognition, but yet, they still recognized him. It was him, all right. It wasn't someone that replaced him. It wasn't him just spiritually. It was a physical body why did Jesus go through that? I mean, many people have died on the cross. I mean, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. And there have been thousands within history that have been crucified. I mean, what's the big deal about Jesus? You know, without the resurrection, that's a a real question. What's the big deal? Without the resurrection, he's just a good teacher that died a bad death. Without the resurrection, it's just a tragedy of a young man dying before his prime, or dying in his prime. Without the resurrection, it's a, it's a single carpenter in the Middle East that was a, born to a teenage girl and her and her, her betrothed uh, husband. He became a political refugee when he was a child. Had to go to Egypt because they were going to kill all of the children because he was the Messiah. He, he had a mystery surrounding his, his birth. I mean, God was doing something in a way that we couldn't comprehend or understand. I mean, what, think about it. Would you, for God's Messiah, have this teenage girl that was betrothed that with her ending up with child could have meant that she could be executed according to the laws of the land it's not like it is today I mean people here just don't care not in, not in that day not in that day man they would take you outside and pick up a rock and throw it at you till you were dead still practiced in many Middle Eastern cultures to this day so what's the big deal well the big deal is who he was It wasn't just anybody that was placed on the cross. It wasn't just a good teacher that was placed on the cross. It wasn't just a celebrity or a political uh, leader or someone leading a rebellion. It wasn't that. It was much, much more than that. It was the God man, God with us, the perfect one. The one that lived among us. The one that saw us in our affliction. The one that saw you in every struggle that you have. The one that saw you in every bad thing that you do. The one that saw you in all the hate that you have. The one that saw you in all of your attitudes and the thoughts of your heart that against God all the time. That's who it was that saw you. And he still loved you. It's the immensity of God's love. And it was him, he, the God man that died on the cross. But that wasn't it. I mean, if it was just Good Friday, it's Good Friday. And Good Friday means nothing without Resurrection Sunday. Absolutely nothing. But well, people today want to make their own faith. They do. They just want to go to, the, you know, go to whatever buffet they can find and, and uh, want to pick and choose. And I, I have to say, at the onset of this whole thing, I want us to keep one thing in mind. I want us to have it just drilled in our thoughts as we go through this time, our time together. And that is this. We cannot put God under our standards. As Isaiah 55 says, His ways are above our ways. The Lord says, My ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. We don't put God in our own standards. I mean, we have skewed standards. We play the field to us. We lean it our way. We don't like the complete objective truth. Especially when we're the ones that are going to be the recipients of it. We like to give ourselves a little mercy, a little bit of edge. So what we do is we create God in our own image. And our will today is filled with it. The, This famous book that's out right now called The Secret. Number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Basically it's just a conglomeration of every other heresy that the world has ever known. She says, you are God. The butterflies fly for you. The stars shine for you. And Mary Poppins has a balloon just for you. Got a wrong view of the world. No, we're under God's standards. God's view. God sets it up. God defines the game. God defines the rules. He sets the parameters. He defines the terms. He sets it all out. It's about him so we have to keep that in mind that it's, it's God's way not our way and we also need to understand this as we get into this passage in Romans 6 and I'm going to resurrect an old term you know something? I'm going to use this term that no one likes to talk about today it's called the term sinner you don't use that term unless you're talking about Tommy Boy that's what we do but we are the scripture calls us sinners what does that mean? I'm not a sinner, I'm not that bad. We compare ourselves to Osama Bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and every other tyrant that we can figure up in history, and we weigh it. And we're like, I'm not that bad. Or we look at our neighbor, and we compare ourselves with them, and we see ourselves almost as a loving playing field, just a bit better, just a bit better than them. That's wrong, we're not compared. God doesn't look and say, here's uh, Mr. Williams and uh, Mrs. Thompson, and I'm going to weigh them with each other. No, he goes, this is my standard my absolute holiness, the absolute purity of who I am, intensely loved, intensely just, intensely merciful and compassionate against Bill. Sinful Bill. And you know what? It tilts in God's favor. It doesn't even register how great this imbalance is. Because we're weighed against God, and God has said that we are sinners by by nature and by choice. Every act that we do, we, it, whether you've done it or not, you've thought it, God God says that's It's the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, not just the literal act. And he says that we're sinners, every one of us. Me, you, don't think I'm exempt. Ask my wife. She will gladly give you a list. Matter of fact, you might need a whole lot of paper, just keep it on disk space. You might need a jump drive to help it out, to fill it, how big this list is. But I'm a sinner. And you and I are both sinners, and we're in the same boat. Which means this this is a boat that's going nowhere. It's a boat that's sinking fast. So we need to understand that we are sinners. And it means that we're under God's wrath. We like to think of God as love. I I like to hear people, I prefer to think of God as loving and as a grandfather with a big white beard. Well you know that 's thanks for telling me about yourself, but i 'd like to talk about God now, because God defines who He is we don 't pick and choose God is an all or nothing god there 's no ninety ten eighty twenty seventy thirty okay god i'll go i 'll go fifty forty but i got the, i mean i 'll go sixty forty i didn't major in math. Come on, God, I'll just keep it. Let me keep this little bit of a leverage. No. It's God over here. And he says, take it all or nothing. There was a song in the the musical, Oklahoma. It's all or nothing. It's what it is. That's how it is with God. You don't just pick and choose. God says you take it all or nothing. All or nothing. So... We're sinners, we're under God's wrath, and that means what happens? One day we're going to die. And one day we're going to face the judgment of God. That's not a good fact we like to think about. I mean, we're all going to die. Have you thought about your death? Have you thought about it? I've stood over some caskets in recent months. I've heard phone calls of different relatives and friends, and I've thought about it long and hard. Life is short. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're going to die. The scripture says that. We're all destined to die once. And after that, it's based judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. So, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean to the resurrection? How does that apply to me and my problems? How does that apply with me and my boss? How does it apply with me and my spouse who can't stand you? And my marriage that's on the rocks? How does that apply to me and raising my kids? Or my kid that has been on serious drug addiction or how does it apply with me that I've got these problems that I just can't stop thinking about this sin right now I'm thinking about it I can't I'm trying to figure out how I can get out of here all I want to do is this sin how does that apply to me what does the resurrection mean to me well it's extremely practical we're gonna see that see if we're a Christian we need to understand a variety of different things and that's why we need to look at our text because see so many people want to be a Christian but yet want to be in the world, is what the Bible calls it, which means away from God. And they want to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. But the problem is, is that the boat of God is departing from the dock. And you can't keep one foot on the, on the boat and on the dock. With God, it's all enough. It's all enough. So let's look at our text. We're in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, hey, that's okay that's fine, don't freak out but I would encourage you, there's one should be right in front of you in the pew and we're going to stick through the text and I want you to read this for yourself I don't want you just to listen to me I don't want you to base eternity upon me I want you to look to God and God's word and if I screw up and say something stupid I'm going to be judged for that I don't want you to look at this straight up I want you to read it for yourself and apply it we're in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, if you don't know where Romans is hey that's cool it's in the New Testament. It means it's in the second part of the book. You can flip up the table of contents. No one's going to look. No one's going to say a word to you. Okay? I've been there myself. And this is Romans. It's Paul's address to the Romans. And this is Paul talking. The Apostle Paul. Just to give you a little background on who Paul is. Paul was an educated Jew. I mean, top Jew. Top ten in his class. He was the who's who among Jews. He made it into Pharisee fraternity. So qualified was he. And he was, he was really in the upper echelon of what it meant to be a Pharisee. Matter of fact, he was so serious that he understood what Christianity meant. It was a direct insult to Judaism. So he persecutes it. I mean, he's given credence to killing Christians. But God takes a hold of his life and transforms him. He takes this Christian killer and makes him a, a jesus person proclaimed. And he writes about by the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit within us. If you come to know Christ, after Christ has left, he has sent a counselor, his Holy Spirit, to indwell all those that believe in him, to teach them the word of God. So the Apostle Paul is teaching, is being led by the Holy Spirit to write this down for us, our benefit. And He was writing to the church at Rome, but it applies to us as well. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? He had just finished saying, remember he had been in chapter 5 and you can look back at that. He starts talking about how the law increased. The law kept telling us what we had to do but we couldn't do it. We kept sinning. We kept going against it. And Paul is saying, hey, you know what? Every time that you sin, God's grace is bigger than that. It's like where this, this fire of sin is, God brings a hose. You know, there's a spark. A little, a, little, just a little fire, a mash. He comes in and dumps over water. Sin beats, your know, grace beats sin. And then maybe it's a bigger sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light something else on fire. Maybe I'm going to light a, a, a garage on fire. God doesn't come in with a hose He just opens up heaven and drops it down And it's this big giant flood So he said, I'm going to light a whole forest on fire God says, no big deal I cover it Trumps every time So the people thought You know, if I keep on sinning, that means grace gets bigger This is a great deal I can keep on sinning And God keeps getting glory Because it keeps going over the sin And Paul's like, no, hold on Shall we who have been free from sin continue in sin? By no means, exclamation point. He's like saying, are you kidding me? Are you serious? You gotta be kidding. We've been freed from sin, why should we continue in it? It's like saying this. I fought on the side of Al-Qaeda and I was following Osama bin Laden, he was my general. But you know what, I saw the error of my ways and I came over to the US Army and I started fighting for them. But you know what? Occasionally I like to go fight for Osama and Al-Qaeda. That's what Paul's saying. You've been freed from that. Why do you keep going back? You can't. You've been moved out of this camp to this one. Why do you continue doing it? It's rem- reminiscent of what Jesus said in John chapter 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, that's the sign if you know who Jesus is. Do you keep His commandments? That's the sign of it. People say, well, I'm, I'm, if I'm good enough. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what the Word of God says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For 2 John 6, and this is love, that we walk in a, according to His commandments. And if you're not living according to the Word of God, then you don't love Him, and you don't have them, and you are in danger of hearing these words when you enter into eternity depart from me, I never knew you. You don't want to hear that. Trust me. You do not want to hear that. But let's keep looking at our text. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now is this talking about real physical act of baptism? No. It's talking about an internal change the moment that you come to know Christ. That you're brought into His body. In our physical baptism, this necessary symbol that God has told us to do observes and shows this, reveals this fact, that we have died to sin, buried with Him, united with Christ, the supreme act of identification. Buried, just as He was buried in the tomb, we're buried under water. As we come up, symbolizes us being washed, cleansed new, but it also symbolizes and shows how we were participants within His resurrection. That's what baptism is a prefigurement of. It shows us that. Now what's the point? This baptism ties us with him. We die too. And that's the first point that I want you to take home with you today. We're going to have a lot of this, but I want you to stay with me. And if you are great at writing notes and that's how you concentrate, then do it. It's right on the back of the canvas within your bulletin. And the first point I want you to take home is this. Those that have placed their faith in Christ have died with Christ. Those that have placed their faith in Christ have died with Christ. What does that mean? Well, when he was crucified, when Jesus was crucified, he took the payment for your sin. The sin that you did last night, he took on himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What does that mean? It means this, that he took his sin upon you, and matter of fact, took you... Into himself and shielded you from the wrath of God. He took it for you. That's what it means. Every act, every evil, God took. I don't think you're catching the immensity and the weightiness of this. This is phenomenal. God would do this for you. I mean, would you take the price? Would you take the penalty for someone that killed your kid? Would you do that? I have two daughters. If you hurt my daughter, I would definitely have a hard time not hurting you. If you were to abuse my kid, every anger within me, if you hurt my child, imagine doing that to God's son. That's a great love that he gave his son, that he would have him abused. And then take the penalty. I mean, it's like you hurt my child, and then I say, You're guilty, but I'm gonna take the price for you. You molested my kid, and I'm gonna take, I'm gonna go to prison for you. What logic is that? What great love? What immense what what who would do such a thing? Only God would. Only God would do that. That's what it means. That he took our sin upon himself. But it wasn't just that. Not only only that, not only those that have placed their faith have died with Christ, it it was just the crucified too. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're dead to sin. Dead to that. That sin comes knocking. Hey, you want to come and hang out? No, I'm dead to you. Get out of here. I'm out of that. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm dead to that. I don't even know you. I'm dead. I got new desires over here. I'm dead to that. That's what it means. I'm dead to that. No longer do I have to do it. I don't have to obey that anymore. Sin used to come knocking at the door demanding rent money. We had to pay they didn't have a choice. God came in, stepped in, and goes, no, you don't have to pay anymore. Now, sin keeps knocking, but you don't have to open the door anymore. You could say, rent's been paid. Jesus paid it in full, oh yeah, for eternity. Bug off. So you could say. You can say that. Now, we look, let's look at the text, back at verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too might walk in newness of life. Walking is always a metaphor for living. We live in the newness of life. Live. We have this new life. Remember when you got something new and you showed it off? I had a new car, had that new car sent. Those new clothes, and you had them on today, it's nice to put them on. You got a new life, put it on. Wear it well. Walk in it. I mean, what's the point of getting a brand new dress, beautiful Sunday dress, or a nice suit, and then just leave it on the hanger? Set there. Oh, put it on. Clothe yourself with it. Walk in it. It's new life. That's what you have. That's what it means. For those that have put their faith in Christ, you, you have new choices. You have new opportunity. You can beat that sin now. You couldn't before. But you can, have, you can make your marriage great. Through God, you can raise your children for God. You have now hope. You've got a purpose in this life. And you know what? Your past is forgiven. For those that have embraced Christ, your past is forgiven. You have a new life. Old man is dead. All that stuff that you did in the past, no matter how great it was, no matter how great, how grand, it's gone. Jesus took it. That's how great he was. That's what he did. The immensity of who he is. What it meant. So those that have placed their faith in Christ, this is point number two, are to live like Christ. To live like Jesus. Are you living like Jesus? And I'm not talking about wearing sandals and speaking in King James English. I'm not talking about that, okay? But I'm talking about looking more like Christ. Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you studying to show yourself approved unto God? Are you seeking to be holy as I am holy? Are you going and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Are you not forsaking of yourselves together? Are you meeting together to pray and worship and to encourage one another, love one another, exhort one another? Are you there to greet one another, forgive one another, admonish one another? Are you there for other people? Do you care about one another? Are you so stinking sheltered that you don't want anyone to touch you? you Are afraid to be contaminated? It's not how it works. See, those that have placed their faith in Christ are to live like Christ. Let's look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Which means this those that have placed their faith in Christ will participate in his resurrection. If you place your faith in Christ, you will be a participant in his resurrection. And what does that mean? Jesus was resurrected. We're going to be a participant within that. We got what he achieved. Not deserving it, we get it. And what does that mean? It means that when we get to glory, you know what? The scripture says that we're going to see him like he is. We should be like him. And you know what? Your eyes are going to behold You're going to see him as he really is. See, he came the first time as the suffering servant, the gentle carpenter, the babe in the manger. He grew up, grew in wisdom and stature with men. He gave his back to the scourging whip. He laid his life down on the cross to be nailed to it. But the next time, the next time he comes, it isn't going to be like that. It's going to be completely different. You're going to stare into the eyes of the one that hung the earth. The one that gave us the seasons, fashioned the oceans. The one who created the continents and the islands. He who hewn the mountains. He who created the animal kingdom. He who fashioned man. You're going to gaze into those eyes. You're going to see the intensity of His love, the pain in His eyes, but a pain that love broke through. You're going to see the eyes that contain all mysteries and who knows all things. You're going to see Him who is the beginning and the end. The one who conquered Satan, sin, and death. You're going to see the greatest king, not a small tract of land, not that type of king, or of an earthly kingdom. You're going to see the king and the rightful heir of the universe. He's going to be clothed in a long robe. And he will have a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head will be white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes will be like a flame of fire. Penetrating, passionate, and all-consuming. His voice will be like the roaring waters. You will see him in all his fullness. You will be terrified. Not as the earthly king, but as the universal and only king. Brothers and sisters, we will see him for who he is. At that moment in time, if you have placed your faith in him, it will be this. This sense of awe, fear, but of awe and love. And for those that haven't, you won't even want to look. God, it says in God's Word that He dwells in inapproachable light. In His light, we see light. You see Him as He is. I mean, you're talking about the strongest being. This, the Lord of all creation. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the moniker, Jesus is my homeboy. We're not talking about anything like that. We're not talking about this frail servant hanging on a cross in so many churches. I mean, Jesus was strong. He was a carpenter. He endured 40 days wandering out in the wilderness while fasting. He was a strong guy. I mean, have you ever seen carpenters that are weaklings? Strong hands, gnarled. But then you're going to see him glorified. And we're going to have a resurrection like his. We're going to be in His presence, and it's not going to be about playing harps. It's going to be the most glorious pleasure you have ever known. And all of these earthly pleasures that we indulge, when we get to glory, you're not, they're not even going to register on the pleasure scale. It's going to be so much glorious, so much more glorious, as we look into the eyes of Jesus. Let's look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to Nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old self was crucified with him. Have you ever felt alone? Lost? Hopeless, like no one cares? That if you died, no one would notice? I don't know if you've kept up in the news, but they're training now the New York City mail carriers. You heard about this? was trained years ago, and they're bringing it back to monitor older people's mail when it begins to pile up, because they're so alone that they died and no one knew. While I was living in Chicago, there was a, a house that had gone up for sale on the auction block because the man hadn't paid his taxes for many years. They auctioned off the house. The man went to, got the keys to the house, went to the house, opened the door, and guess what? The previous owner was sitting on his chair, dead for six years and no one had ever even noticed. Grass had grown up all around, mail had piled up and no one had ever even noticed. Auctioned the house, didn't even go in. Now this new guy takes over the house and finds this man dead, alone. Do you feel alone? you ever felt like you were just dying, you were just spinning your wheels? You just couldn't move, you couldn't progress? You ever felt lost without a map? Well, God sees where you're at right now. Just as Google Earth comes down and you can see all manner of things, God's all-seeing eye is greater than Google Earth. Because he sees into your heart, he sees in your affliction. He says, I died for you. I've loved you. What does that mean? Well, let's look. Let's continue to look at the text to, to draw this out. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means if we believe in Christ, we have trusted in him, not only we will be participants. are we participants in the crucifixion and his death, will be participants in his resurrection, but it also means that those who place their trust and faith in Christ will have heaven as their destination. Heaven. Heaven. Now let's get this straight, by the way. There is heaven. And you know what? Not everyone is going. The scripture says, broad is the pathway to destruction, but narrow is the road to eternal life, and few find it. Few. Few. Few and it's coming there will be some that will go to heaven in glory and experience the greatest pleasure imaginable the greatest joys the greatest delicacies the pleasure of knowing God and seeing God and doing what God made you to do and then there's hell people don't like to think about hell a good God wouldn't send people to hell a good and just God certainly would He's just. And to sin against him is to sin against the infinite one, which requires infinite punishment. And even one sin, one act, one act of disobedience, the biting of the fruit brought about the entire fall of humanity. So one act of sin against God requires an infinitude of punishment. Everlasting conscious torment. There's no relief. There's no breaks. There's no lunch. There's no rest. There's no sleep. There's no relief. It's fire that is unquenchable. The scripture talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth and you're always haunted by the thought that will just grip you and hold you to say, why didn't I listen? Why? Why? And we don't want to think about it. Matter of fact, some of you just can't think about it right now and you're trying to, to think, how long till I get out of here? I'm just going to go back to my world where God doesn't exist. But you know what? God exists. Whether you stick your head in the sand like an ostrich, the battle is still going on around you and it's inevitable. It's inevitable. And you will see. All of us will see. Every one of us. What does that mean then? Heaven and hell. Well, it means that Jesus is the judge. We don't like to think about Jesus as the judge. We like to think about John 3.16, right? We know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But we forget to read verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Saved from what? Well, it's the wrath of God. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light is come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Did Jesus come to judge the world? Not the first time, but the second time he will. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 21 through 29, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's going to judge. Do you like to think about Jesus as judge? Have you thought about Jesus as judge and what that means? I mean, we're all good again with the baby in the manger, but Jesus as judge, I, I don't know. I mean, why is he qualified to be the judge? I didn't say he could be a judge. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to live. I didn't ask to go through all this stuff. Yet, the fact is, we pain is inevitable in life. Misery is optional. God's offering it to you to break the sin, break the chain of sin and disobedience to give you eternal life, forever with him, freedom, complete freedom in him. You have to remember that Christ's death was the greatest tragedy the world has ever known. It was the greatest crime because of who it was against. I mean, it was greater than than homelessness and poverty that plagues America. It's greater than any political regime, greater than any terrorist attack. It was greater than the racism that gripped America, that saw the death of numerous individuals in kangaroo courts. It was greater than the killing of some 40 to 50 million children since Roe versus Wade. It was greater than what happened to the 6 million Jews during World War II and the Holocaust. Greater than the 10 million Russians killed under their own leader, Stalin. Greater than the almost 1 million people that were killed during the Rwandan genocide. Greater than the almost 3,000 that died on 9-11, greater than the 230,000 that were killed in the tsunami of 2004, greater than the millions that have died in Darfur, greater than the 200 million less women in the world that have been killed because of their gender, greater than the tragedies than the 35 to 45 million girls aborted in India because their parents wanted a boy rather than a girl. It's greater than these forced circumcisions in Africa for these young girls. Greater than the thousands of women who are forced into prostitution this each year. I mean, these are tragedies. These are crimes. These are horrible things. It's greater than the rape of hundreds of thousands of women. Greater than the molestation of thousands and hundreds of children. Hundreds of thousands of children that never get reported and never know. That's what happened to Christ. All of those things, all of those tragedies went upon him. And he took it. He took it, greater than any abuse that you can think of or place with another or add to it. Take all of those and add them up together and it still doesn't equal what happened to Jesus. Doesn't equal. All of those together, some of the greatest tragedies in modern history, and it's it's not even an exhaustive list. People are suffering of starvation, poverty, homelessness, equal rights, social injustice, AIDS, I mean water deprivation, sexism, racism. Others are under oppressive governments and regimes. Some are in horrible family situations where their husband beats the children and the wife. And the list goes on and on. Our world is full of evil all over. It's all over the world. We've got to co- stop living in our little isolated world where it's just me and my television and the internet, me checking my email each day. It goes beyond that. It's greater than any crime, any violation, any trespass, any type of poverty, any famine, any theft, any rape, molestation, murder, or genocide. That's what happened to him. Don't you get it? That's why he's qualified. God himself took your sin upon himself, died on the cross for you, and was resurrected from the dead. That validates everything. That changes everything. That gives me purpose to my life. That shows me I'm not stuck in my sin. That dictates what I do. That dictates how I think. I place myself under that. I say, you are worthy. You alone are worthy. You took all of that. How could you do that? Because of his love. That's what it means. I'm going nuts as I look at people in America. It is like watching The Matrix. I feel like I'm watching it live each and every day. People are going about their lives, caring not what's going to happen to them for eternity. Caring not and and saying, well, I'll just ask my priest or I'll just ask my religious leader and staking eternity on that person's opinion. And who knows if he's not a freaked out weirdo that thinks Jesus came as a mushroom. Look at the word. Trust what it says. Go to it. This is your soul you're talking about. What can you give for your soul? No credit card. No sheik. Bill Gates can't buy a soul. He can't. None of that. Think about it. Think about it. hard. this is the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life. Are you going to believe and trust in the resurrection? Is it going to change your life? Is it going to dictate? Is it going to show you what it means to be a real person of God? What he means. Men and women. Men, what it means to be a man. Women, what it means to be a woman. I mean, Christ treasured women. I mean, he gave them rights in society that no one else would ever recognize. People forget that. They say Christianity is sexist. No, it's not. I mean, think about who was entrusted the resurrection. I mean, we have the resurrection morning. Who was the first ones entrusted? Mary, the other, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome. Those are the women that were entrusted with the message of Christ. Even though in Jewish time, a woman's uh, testimony was invalid. God entrusted it to her. God speaks... To those that are hurting. He speaks to us now. He speaks to us in the midst of our sin and our rebellion. And he's speaking to you right now. And he's saying, what does the resurrection mean to you? Because we're all going to be resurrected. Every one of us. God has no problem resurrecting us. He fashioned the world. He made us out of dirt. He can resurrect us. No matter what time or the elements do. No matter if you're cremated and thrown to the wind. He has no problem just going... He's gone. It's not a problem. How does he do that? He's gone. I don't ask. I wouldn't get it if he told me. Christ's resurrection, that's the greatest victory. The greatest hope. Greater than the battle for American independence. Greater than the day that World War I and World War II were declared over. Greater than the repeal, repealing of slavery. Greater than the right of women to vote. Greater than the day that Adolf Hitler was reported dead greater than any victory. Greater than any event in history. It was the greatest event that has ever and will ever occur. And it is the axis upon which eternity turns. Now, as we think about this text, we have to understand that His resurrection gives us hope that those who place their trust in Christ have been crucified with Him. That died have been risen again to have new hope, to have new direction for your life. Your past forgiven, you're present with a purpose, and your future secure. You can have that. That direction. You can have that right now. As our lives, are our lives a reflection of that truth? Does the re- resurrection mean anything to us? Has, how has Christ's resurrection impacted your life? Perhaps you do not agree with me. Well, I have this to ask you. If I found out that you had cancer and you had, let's say, pancreatic cancer, and you had three weeks to live, but there is a cure for your cancer that I know about, what you want me to tell you is you, I'm a doctor, and we're in, the, we're in the office together, and we're in the room, and I tell you, you know what? Clean bill of health, you're all good. Keep going. When I have the cure right there, which would be the greater injustice? It would be the greater injustice that I didn't tell you. Especially if I had the cure right then and there. Well, the fact of the matter is, we have the disease. We have a cancer called sin. And I'm telling you, there's only one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. He died for you and me. Paid the price for our sin. He was resurrected from the dead. And he gives us new meaning, a new life. New clothes to put on. Put on that newness of life. And that's available for all who trust in Him. No matter what you've done. No matter what it is. God's grace is bigger. Remember, that fire of sin, no matter what your fire of sin is, His grace just abounds. Covers it over. It's a tsunami of grace that comes over you. God, I've done this. Covered. That's what Jesus meant. But I've done this. You don't understand. Covered. That's what Jesus meant. But God, I I can't. Have you trusted in him? Is your life a reflection of that truth? Does the resurrection mean everything to you? It should, and if it doesn't, then I pity you. And I weep, and I mean that. I weep for you. Jesus is giving you the opportunity to know him. He's tugging at your heart right now. Here's the opportunity. Here it is. A lifetime, chance of a lifetime, the ultimate promotion. You've been toiling around in the darkest place and so he's offering to give you the penthouse. But you're too busy hanging out in the outhouse. You've got to give it up to get it. You've got to grab it. It's there. How do you do it? Believe in it. Believe in Jesus Christ. What he has done for you. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the wrath of God. Because why? Jesus paid it for you and he gave you eternal life. But if you don't accept it, then God's wrath remains on you and it's a price that you'll spend eternity paying and you'll never pay it off. It'll always be, never exhausted. And that opportunity is for you right now to give you hope, to help you rebuild your life, to help you and give you purpose to defeat your sin and give you eternal life. Let's pray. If you do not know him, I would encourage you to pray this with me now. If you want to know him and invite him into your life, say, Father, I admit I'm a sinner. I confess it to you. You already knew it. You saw me in the darkness. The darkest part of my heart and my thoughts. You know how I've treated others. You know how I've rebelled against you. But you died. Lord, you died for me. You loved me. You bled for me. You took everything I deserved upon Yourself. And You gave me eternal life. And Your Word says that if I trust in You, I've passed from death into life. I will no longer go to the resurrection of judgment, but I will participate within Your resurrection. Thank You for saving me, for cleansing me. And Lord, help me to apply the truth that I will not continue in sin that grace may abound. That I will follow You. I, I love You. And I desire to do what your word says. As you have said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. I want to do your commands. Transform me. And I thank you for it now. In Jesus' name. Amen. As Melissa come